Welcome to The Rot Focus, a podcast for writers, newbies, and veterans, and everyone in between. We're hosted by M.A. Lee, with the assistance of Remy Black and Edie Runes, all from Writers, Inc. Books. Our focus is productivity, process, craft, and tools. Each episode lasts as long as it takes to fix a quick dinner, grab a short commute, or take a brisk walk. Resources and links are in the show notes. Visit us at therockfocus.blogspot.com. Now, on to this week's episode. Hiya! In this episode, we have the plot structure that's taught to everyone. It's basic. It's common. It's great for students. That's all it is. Not good for writers. Nope. We only bring it up because everyone starts here. It actually comes from Shakespeare. Yeah, that old dude. Let's start. Freytag's Pyramid is the most visual plot structure. It's the one taught like Bible standard in middle school, secondary school, and some colleges. Freytag's Pyramid is actually an adapted, reduced, reductive version of Shakespeare's dramatic structure. The structure for tragedy takes the form of a pyramid with the wide base at the bottom. The pyramid actually starts with a line that goes straight across, and that's called the storyline. Actions in the story work above or below the line. Then the story moves along. And most people will depict the pyramid as an equilateral pyramid going up the same distance that it goes down on the other side. So the middle part of the story are actually the events two through six are the major movements of the story. So we move along. The story starts. That's our basic line. And it goes into the exposition, which introduces the conflict. Then the story events begin rising. The leg of the pyramid goes up. The middle part of the leg of that pyramid that's going up is called rising action. All events in the plot are building to a point of greatest interest. Greatest interest. We always ask, for whom? The protagonist? The reader? In Shakespeare's structure, rising action is called something else. And it is a clearer understanding of story events in Shakespeare than with Freytag. Once conflict begins its juggernaut rolling, more and more tension results. Freytag would have us believe this goes straight up. Actual stories are more like a roller coaster up and down, up and down. Anyway, the tip of the pyramid, the very highest point of the pyramid, is called the climax. It's defined in the pyramid as that point of greatest interest. Most climatic scenes are definitely of great interest, but that's not an accurate understanding of what the climax is. Then the pyramid line goes down, back to our storyline, and that line going down is called the falling action, which is often literally defined as everything after the climax. It finishes the major elements of the story, ties up any loose ends, and leads to the story's closure. Back on that storyline 
is the closure or resolution when the major elements and the loose ends are taken care of during the following action what is the purpose of the resolution this is another inaccurate term when we are working in Freytag structure the structure for comedy goes in the opposite direction the high point of the triangle and a tragedy is up for a comedy it's down so the pyramid for comedy is below the storyline it's not substantially different though is it it's just upside down comedy has different goals and approaches than tragedy none of which can be represented there on the pyramid when examined closely Freytag's pyramid reveals its simplistic design as if the creator of the pyramid was dumbing down information. Notice that both images, the right-up pyramid, the upside-down pyramid, give equal weight to the rising action and the falling action. The exact center of the story would appear to be the climax. That's never the case. Anyone familiar with basic story structure, and that's anyone who has seen a few films, knows that the climax occurs close to the end. Therefore, in recent years, the equilateral triangle is shifted to resemble a slanted triangle, something like a scalene, so that we have a very steep line going up for the rising action part. We have the climatic point, and then it drops very quickly back down to the storyline for the resolution. That image more accurately reflects the quick falling off of the action after the climax is achieved. None of the versions of the pyramid take into consideration that characters often end worse off than they began and therefore below the starting line of the story are much better off than they could have dreamed of and therefore well above the starting line. Two pros for Freytag. The illustration is clear enough for beginning writers and readers to follow and understand. The definitions are simple enough for beginners as well. Cons for Freytag. The illustration and the definitions are too simplistic. We really, as writers, have nothing to work with. Second, neither represents actual story movement, which is an organic ebb and flow, more like the waves on a beach, rather than a flat, perfectly angled drawing. Shakespeare's plot requirements. Every single one of William Shakespeare's plays fit this plot structure. Whether tragedy or comedy or history play, the dramatic course will fall into these broad sections. All of Shakespeare's plays have five acts. Each act serves a specific purpose. Writers receive quite a bit of guidance for scenes by following the act's purpose. The number of scenes within acts vary, allowing freedom in developing the story. Allotted passage of time is not dictated by the number of scenes. Any time jumps are explained at the beginning of scenes. Just as each act has a purpose, each scene fulfills its purpose by maintaining the focus to develop conflict, character, theme, and more. Act 1 is called the introduction. The opening scene presents the situation and the chief theme. A protagonist is not usually in this scene, although the antagonist always is. 
The conflict that is the play's driving force has a vivid example in the opening scene or the one immediately following. By the time the protagonist comes on stage, we understand the setting and the situation, the opposing particulars, and the reason that the protagonist will be involved. Dual protagonists require equal scenes, and dual antagonists, even if minor, may play a stronger role in one of the scenes controlled by the protagonist. The tragedy of Macbeth opens with the three witches, planning to push someone into murder, symbolized by the famous fair is foul, foul is fair. Macbeth and his best friend Banquo do not come on stage until scene three. Scene two introduces what will happen to a traitor to the king and lets us know that Macbeth fought for his king and won the battle for him. As a matter of fact, without Macbeth, the king would have lost to the traitor and his allies. Great directors will have the witches swirling around on the fringes of the stage in scene two, retreating only to reemerge when Macbeth and Banquo appear. Lady Macbeth appears in scene five, first reading Macbeth's letter of the events foretold by the witches, then welcoming him home and agreeing to a plan. Then we have two more scenes. The king must arrive. With his cousin king asleep in his house, Macbeth hesitates only to have his wife convince him. Act 2. Complications. The additional important characters are introduced in ways that make them likable or engaging. The protagonist's motivations become clear and the first steps to achieve a desired goal are taken. Most of Shakespeare's protagonists are not fools. While Romeo never thinks trouble will occur from his marriage to Juliet, Macbeth does worry about getting caught, only to be reassured by Lady Macbeth. Hamlet plays insane. Brutus is worried about taking a fatal step against his friend. Antagonists like Iago and Edmund in the tragedies and Don John in the comedies reveal their evil hearts. Their original plans may fail, but they are determined to create another one. In Macbeth, Lady Macbeth makes sure the murderous plan is ready to set in motion. Macbeth carries out the plan, only to need his wife to put the murder weapons back and smear the blood on the two guards, ensuring they will be blamed. These opening two scenes are long. Scene three gives us the comic scene with the porter and the arrival of Macbeth's nemesis, Macduff unmentioned in Act 1. The king's dead body is found, and Macbeth claims that he kills the guards because he is so enraged by the king's death. Scene 4 has none of the principles on stage. It offers a passage of time and a view of the three ways people react to King Duncan's death and to the crowning of the new king, Macbeth. Act 3 is the crisis. This act is the peak, the greatest action and the greatest emotional intensity for the protagonist. In a comedy, this is a low point, as Claudio rejects Hero in Much Ado About Nothing, and the lovers are all confused in Midsummer Night's Dream. In a tragedy, the protagonist will believe the goal is achievable, 
Events will create problems, but surely those problems can be overcome. Banquo and his little son Fleance open Act 3 of Macbeth, and we discover that Macbeth has hired murderers to kill his best friend and his best friend's son. Lady Macbeth expresses in scene 2 a bit of worry that problems will haunt them, but Macbeth reassures her. The murderers succeed and fail in scene three and report back to Macbeth in scene four. And then Banquo does come to the banquet as a ghost that only Macbeth can see. He needs the witches. But the witches spend scene five being berated by their goddess Hecate for picking a man who would use them rather than one who will be used by them. Do better to mislead him, the goddess urges. Scene 6, like the concluding scene in the previous act, serves as passage of time and an update on the state of the people. Macbeth's lies are transparent. His evil is known, and Macduff has left Scotland to seek out the rightful Scottish heir in England. Act 4 is the reversal scene. Aware of the antagonist's actions, the protagonist uses countermeasures the antagonist will respond with countermeasures of his own. In Midsummer Night's Dream, this is a lovely roundabout with Puck fixing all the problems. In Much Ado, enter the heretofore barely glimpsed watchman who will see all, will understand not at all, but will still manage to fix all. Meanwhile, the friar's convoluted plan to have Claudio grieve for Hero is set forward and Benedict swears love for Beatrice, who requires him to challenge Claudio to a duel. Thinking all is well with his destruction of love's young dream, Don John leaves. For Macbeth, the opening scene of Act Four with the witches is one of the most intriguing of all the play's scenes. We have the three apparitions with their three prophecies and the additional prophecy by a mirror of Banquo's descendants. Thinking to avoid the prophecy of Beware Macduff, Macbeth orders the family slain, even though the man himself is in England. Scene two is the pitiful scene that opens by creating connections and sympathy for the little Macduff family, only to be horrified by the deaths of these innocents. Scene three casts us to England, where Macduff is persuading the usurped Malcolm to take back his throne, and who is then horrified to learn of his family's murders, the very proof of Macbeth's evil that Malcolm needed. Rumor wasn't enough. Factual evidence was needed. The last act, Act 5, is the climax and resolution. In Much Ado, Hero is proved innocent. Claudio and she will marry, while Beatrice and Benedict discover they were tricked into love, but will stick to it. And Don John is caught escaping. In Midsummer, we have the play within the play, which not only amuses, but also gives an opportunity to see the three couples in harmony. Lady Macbeth was absent from Act 4. She opens 5 with her sleepwalking from Guilty Secrets. Scenes 2 and 4 are Scottish forces marching on Macbeth's stronghold, with the latter scene showing the fulfillment of one of the prophecies. Matching these scenes are scenes three and five, with Macbeth's reaction to the oncoming army, 
the flight of his military forces and the flight of the personal force of his wife through her mental decay and then her death. Scenes 6 and 7 are battle scenes, making it clear that Macbeth is still a strong opponent until he meets Macduff in scene 8. The two men fight their way off stage, then Malcolm and his supporters enter, Macduff returns swinging the traitor's head, and a new King of Scotland is to be crowned. Here are the pros for the Shakespeare dramatic structure. Those we counted for Aristotle, we can also count for Shakespeare, especially that of the irony in life. Verisimilitude, remember that? Our flaws, which lead to our downfall. Other people who have equally disastrous flaws and in the antagonist within us. Shakespeare's structure reminds us that a central conflict will cause multiple consequences. Third pro, no reasonable person in seeing a catastrophe's approach will stand and do nothing. The crisis and reversal acts reveal the protagonist and the antagonist's attempts to prevent doom only to make it worse. And in the comedies, new characters may enter who will assist with the conflict's resolution. Knowing that these characters will be important, great directors will have them appear on stage earlier, although they won't force them into speaking parts. As writers, we can easily use such characters in earlier scenes. Here are the cons for Shakespeare. Again, we have the large sections that we're working with rather than individual elements for guidance. Those unfamiliar with Shakespeare's plays have to study closely to discover how the various scenes are tied together. Second, some plays have short, busy scenes, while others have longer scenes broken by short ones. When this occurs, the events seem out of balance. Should every scene in a play and chapter in a book be of equal weight and length? No writers have a good answer to that question. For Shakespeare, the reality is that Acts 1 and 2 are always the longest. Act 3 opens strong, can drag in scenes 3 and 4, then picks up speed again. If we do a page count, it can run as long as Act 1 itself. Act 4 is often filled with quick, active scenes as the ending rockets closer. Macbeth's fifth act is much longer than others while the fifth act of Romeo and Juliet is extremely short. What do writers want to know about plot? What do writers need to know about plot? The right focus is taking a comprehensive view of plot, the structure that develops characters, genre expectations, major story structures, pacing, tension, suspense, we cover it all in this series entitled Discovering Your Plot from M.A. Lee's Guidebook of the Same Name. Writers will discover unexpected insights and methods that deepen their understanding of this major craft in the storytelling world. Mm -hmm.
Thanks for listening to The Rock Focus, a podcast for writers at all levels, hosted by Emma Lee from Writers Inc. Books, assisted by Renee Black and Edie Runes. Our focus is productivity, process, craft, and tools. Music is licensed through Audio Jungle called Background Music Loop. Its creator is Alexander Polishchuk, known on Audio Jungle as Plastic 3. The music comes in different iterations. Show notes and resource links for this and other episodes can be found at therightfocus.blogspot.com. Write to us at winkbooks at aol.com when you have questions, comments, and speculations. We will try to answer you as quickly as possible. By the way, we will not mind your email address. That's rude. If you find value in our content, share with your writing friends or write a review. We're small beans here without the advertising budget of the big peeps, and you can make a difference. And whatever occurs, right on.